Lasso. This morning we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. It's good to bear in mind this fourfold analysis of Buddha Gosa. I don't, I don't think I've shared it. It's very simple, but very, very helpful and very profound as well. So as we saw with loving-kindness, the false facsimile, that which is diametrically opposed and so forth, likewise there's a fourfold analysis of compassion, and that which is diametrically opposed, uh, the exact opposite of compassion. I think the best word in English would be cruelty. Cruelty as a mental state, not as some type of activity. And cruelty, as I'll define it here, and you can pretty much figure it out if you consider what is the definition of compassion. I'll just turn it right around 180 degrees. The actual aspiration that others, or at least one, some, some individual, some sentient being, may suffer and find the, the causes of suffering. And there's an aspiration, and aspiration le- easily leads to intent, and then intent gives rise to acts of violence, cruelty, and so forth. So that's which is diametrically opposed. That which can look very much like compassion, but isn't, it's a false facsimile, or what's called the near enemy, is grief and despair. Grief and despair. And sometimes it may be expressed in, in the words in English. Um, if we see some tragedy on television or what have you, some, whatever it may be, or in our own immediate life, and just feeling, oh, I feel so sorry, I feel so sorry, and then bursting into tears. I'm so, I just, oh, I'm so, so sorry, I'm so deeply sorry, and then just crying. So that's good. I think that's, maybe it's good. It's empathy, it's sympathy. Um, but if that's all it is, it's just, I'm so sorry, and then one feels very terrible and bad, exactly who is that benefiting? It's not compassion. It can look, oh, you're such a compassionate person. I saw the buckets of tears you shed over such and such. And then what did you do to help? Oh, nothing. I was just so sad. And so sadness is almost like, like, like starting a car with ignition and you're going, ah, and then it doesn't start. You just go, ah, ah, ah. Uh, but the engine never turns over. So then what's the point? It's making a lot of noise, right? So that's kind of like compassion that isn't quite half-baked. It gets aborted halfway through and just never comes to flower, never turns into anything. Like, I'm so sad. I'm so sad. I'm sad. I'm sad. I'm sad. Big deal. Now we, everybody has to feel compassion for you. So not so useful. The immediate catalyst is witnessing, truly attending to the suffering of others. But more than that, is seeing that there's a possibility of that suffering being alleviated. If you don't see, if you don't see any possibility, why, would you, why, you know, why does any sensible person desire something that simply cannot happen at all? Why not waste, you know, save your breath. But if you see the possibility, and not possibility in the next five minutes or necessarily next five years, but just basically the, next, the possibility. And this, once again, very briefly, is where this Buddhist view of continuity of consciousness can be helpful, because there may be some situations where in this lifetime, a certain person may hope be, be hopeless, hopeless. They just don't want to change. And then if, if this is the only life, then you say, okay, that person has no chance. But then if we consider, okay, but may I, may I serve you in a future lifetime, is actually more than lip service. I mean, if you really believe this, then it becomes an, aspiro- an aspiration and a way to dedicate one's merit. So, you know, all endu- long enduring, long vision of no one is hopeless. So there's the immediate catalyst and the sign of success, it's always good to know, is that any impulse, any 
incentive, any arousal of any kind of desire to inflict harm, to really wish other people, to manifest other people uh, suffering or encountering the causes of suffering, that subsides. So when you can see that no matter how other people treat you, if that impulse to retaliate, to cause other people to suffer, if that subsides, okay, then your compassion's working. Okay? And almost invariably, when we get upset or maybe distraught or outraged at other people's behavior, and we just, you know, just moral indignation and outrage, uh, and it goes to give rise to anger, and very easily then to violence, very easily to violence, and to malevolence and, and, and malice and cruelty, that same awareness can just be tweaked, can just be turned, and instead of moral outrage, it just turns to the compassion. Simply turns to the compassion. And then to imagine, then to, 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 to visualize this person being free of those qualities or those type of behavior that are, so ter- that are so detrimental. So all of this is fairly familiar, I think. But as we are now running towards the end of our retreat, um, we're focusing here in terms of these phases of compassion meditation on the, that second dimension, right? The second dimension relating to suffering of change, which is directly to, direct, direct related to craving and attachment, right? So that's familiar territory. A, a term I think I've hardly even used, and maybe not even used once in, what is it, six and a half weeks, is a term now that, you, that I've never seen in the Pali Canon. It may be there, but I've never seen it. And, but you find it all over the place in the Mahayana teachings, and that is self-centeredness, self-centeredness. Sometimes literally but poorly translated as self-cherishing. I'm not going to use that translation. Self-centeredness really gets the, the right connotation. And it's not the same as attachment or craving. It's not the same. But as you can read in Chandadeva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, this self-centeredness from the Mahayana perspective now, this is the root of all suffering. This is the root of all of one's own suffering, the root of other people's suffering. It really boils down to this. So now what is this, you know, like the worst criminal in, in the world? You know, what's, what's, his, what's his description? What's his definition? Self-centeredness. It's very simple. It's not a brain twister at all. You understand attachment. We've dealt with that. But now something that's not quite the same. And then self-centeredness is ever so simply stated as the placing the highest priority the greatest value on one's own well-being. And then, okay, I mean, number one, my well-being, most important, of seven billion human beings and all those other critters, I'm, my well-being, most important. So if there's only one, if there's only one cupcake on the planet, I should eat it. I don't care how hungry other people are, if there's something really nice there, I should get it, right? So I'm putting it rather extreme, but there it is. And then we say, but of course, then there's my family. Okay, well, then me first, of course, but then my family. My family, not your family, not their family, certainly not those other people's. Then my family. So then all that one identifies with, my state, my country. And so when it, when it goes to my country being, my country's well-being our power, our wealth, our influence, our prestige is the most important. Then we call that patriotism, nationalism, um, stupid nationalism. The notion that you know that if you that you love your country means that you consider the 
the welfare of your own country, your own ethnic group, your own religious group, your own ideological group, your own family, and so forth, that we are most important, then that's a root of suffering. That's a root of suffering for your country, root of suffering for everybody's country. And, and throughout most of recorded history, it seemed like it was kind of okay that you could be just working for yourself, spit on everybody else, and come out on top. It seemed like that could be okay. If we think about the, the big imperialistic countries of you know, modern history, going and stomping on other people, racism towards other people, exploiting other people, and they just get fatter and wealthier and wealthier and more powerful and so forth. Said, wow, it really works. There's you know, my country above all. That really seems to work very well. But now especially with this global village where economically, whatever you feel about the Saudis, the Chinese, the Greeks, the Americans, the Mexicans, the Brazilians, the Indians, whatever you feel about them, you like them, you don't like them, whatever. We're all so tied up now that one little country of 11.4 million people of Greece, if their economy really, if, if it really crashes, then the pundits of the world are saying, oh, there goes Spain, there goes Italy, there goes world economy. You know? And so the notion, well, never mind Greece. I mean, whatever, that's a nice vacation spot. Whatever happens to them, that's their problem. You know? Especially when they were retiring at the age of 53 with an 80% pension. You know, like, serves them right. Well, whether it serves them right or not, we're all entangled now. And that's just the raw fact. And economically, it's so obvious, but then if, it's, if anything to me needs to be more obvious, environmentally, global warming, pollution, exploitation of the oceans. There was a big headline in, in the news just a few days ago, newsflash, that we, 7 billion people on the planet, were devouring the resources of the Earth fast, faster than the replenished. Isn't that a jaw-dropper? And it was actually on the front, front, front page of a newspaper. Like, whoa, who would have thought? <laughs> you know? Like, that's news? Journalists, where have you been living? On moon? On Mars? You know, what about, have you not noticed this has been going on for decades? And so self-centeredness on the surface of it, whether it's individual, whether it's one's own state, one's continent, one's hemisphere, or again, all these groups that we divide ourselves into, Republicans and Americans, the Republicans and Democrats, evangelical Christians and non-evangelical Christians and Jews and atheists and so forth and so on. On the one hand, if we just come back to the individual, self-centeredness, the feeling, my well-being is really more important than everybody else's. That seems to be, for the deluded mind, that seems to be our best friend. That attitude seems to be our best friend. That's my protector. That's my champion. That's my knight in white and, and shining armor. That's the one that's going to protect me from all the people who don't think my well-being is most important. And I will get in there by the power of my self-centeredness. I'll get in there and get, I'll grab mine and I'll run away and I got mine. Thank you, self-centeredness. You served me well again. It looks on the surface like our best, serve, uh, our best friend. It seems like it's really getting things for us. We push ourselves in front of the line. We nudge ourselves. We, we promote ourselves and so forth. And then it's like, wow, I did that because I was so selfish, you know? And it looks like it on the surface. And then Shantideva says, when you look more deeply, this is your worst enemy. Now, when we see it in other people, if we see it in another individual, this really kind of, it's got a comic twist to it. If we see this in another person, we're looking over at that, that person there, I say, often say Jack and Jill. So today it's going to be Jack. 
look over at Jack and I say, oh, look how selfish Jack is. He's so inconsiderate. He's so self-absorbed. And, and, and why, are you upset? So why are you so upset, Alan? Uh, because he wasn't consi- paying consideration to me at all. He, he was so thoughtless and discourteous. Uh, it's just really bugging me. And he said, yeah, but he's been doing that for years to other people. I know, yeah, but, but he did it to me. <laughs> why are you laughing? And this is the comic part of it. You know, we don't mind other people's self-centeredness until it impinges upon our own. And then it's, how dare you? How dare you? You're so discourteous, so inconsiderate. You're pathological. You're so, you're terrible. Oh, now you're doing it to others, other people? Oh, okay. That's, that's, then it's okay. Just keep your self-centeredness directed other direction. <laughs> Just don't let it impinge upon my, my, my rights. So there it is. So you might want to consider whether you've ever fallen into this attitude. <laughs> and the really, the really devious thing about self-centeredness is that from a wisdom perspective, it's kind of obvious that craving and attachment going out to objects and people, things, status, wealth, and so forth, and thinking that's a true source of happiness, kind of like, at least conceptually, I think we got that one. It's actually foolish. It's idiotic. It's not reality-based. Right? But this self-centeredness is more devious. It's more devious. So we can ask, is it possible, if you're really full of attachment and craving for things in the world, are, do you, is that, are you a Dharma practitioner? You have to say, no, you, didn't, you don't understand the nature of Dharma. If you're still clinging to wealth and fame and power and sensual pleasure, then you're, that's not a Dharma practitioner. You're just an ordinary hedonic person. So, but that's, you're not a Dharma practitioner. But now, could you be a Dharma practitioner? A person really may be very intensely devoted to dharma, like hairs on fire and all that business. Could you be devoted to dharma and be driven by self-centeredness? Uh-oh. Yeah, I think so. Look out, everybody. I want to achieve shamatha first. Shut up. Be quiet. I'm practicing. I'm a meditator. Be quiet. How dare you? I'm going to get the police on you. I'm really trying to practice dharma here. And I'm practicing for the four measurables. Don't mess with me. I mean, really, it, I hate it when you do that. Try to practice four measurables. I'm trying to achieve, achieve all four of them. And you're just pissing me off here. So, you know, just back off. And now I'm really going. I'm going, going for bodhicitta. Would you please be quiet? I'm trying to go for, for the sake of all sentient beings. Not you people, because you're just in my way. But for the sake of all sentient beings, I'm trying to achieve perfect enlightenment. Why do you keep on laughing at me? It's really pissing me off, you know? So this self-centeredness can go right into the bloodstream of your dharma practice. It really can. And the Mahayana will say, and I think with, with justification, if you are thinking, well, every man for himself, every woman for himself, herself, I'm now going to go for liberation, hell-bent on liberation for myself, and everybody, you know, good luck, good luck, here, here's a book or two, and now... I'm going off by myself, you know. Uh, it may be really intense, you know. I'm going to not harm anybody, but don't expect me to be too benevolent because I'm busy. I'm really focusing on liberation, my liberation. I want to achieve those jhanas. I want to achieve stream entry. I want to achieve my liberation as quickly as possible. And the less you people all get in my way, the better. Because I'm really out to achieve liberation, total purity of craving, hostility, and delusion. Something's a little bit wrong. If we really did exist independently, then in kind of a warped, limited, 
myopic kind of way, that would make sense. But if our very existence is one of utter existential, intrinsic interdependence, then the notion of my achieving my own liberation and leaving everybody else behind is just crazy. So there it is. While attachment, craving, greed may be really mundane, hedonic and all of that, self-centeredness can get right into your shamatha practice, into your four measurables practice, your vajrayana practice, your mahayana practice, your Theravada practice, your Christian practice, and so forth. It can permeate, and let alone, your Marxist practice and your fascist practice and so forth. Self-centeredness get all over the place. So to reflect upon this, not just taking this as a sermon or this is the Buddhist view or, yeah, that's a very nice altruistic notion, but really to investigate. Is this true or not? Shantideva is making a very, a very strong claim here. He said the root of all suffering is self-centeredness, deeper than craving, greed, attachment. It's self-centeredness. So then he addresses self-centeredness as, okay, now you are my, you are my worst enemy. He does this with his own mental afflictions. You are my worst enemy. Now, no matter what, you you I'll overcome. You, my self-centeredness, you I will overcome. And his whole eighth chapter then is all gearing up in the context of of meditation, dhyana, dhyana. It's all about really overcoming self-cherishing. And first of all, developing a sense of evenness that one cherishes each individual around you as much as yourself developing a complete evenness, so here we are back to equanimity, and then rotating that one, cher- one cherishes others more than oneself. And on that basis, then develops great compassion, great loving kindness, and so forth and so on. Right? So there it is, moving into the Mahayana territory of great compassion, we see it's a direct antidote towards self-centeredness. So, this is a big deal, that it can certainly change lives right from the absolute core. So let's jump in and practice. Practice silently. Practice in the, the immeasurable compassion mode, if you like, in the great compassion mode, if you like. But this time I really invite you to reflect upon the, the nature of self-centeredness and the repercussions of self-centeredness in your own life, in the lives of others, the lives of nations, and so forth, and then arousing not moral indignation, but then just the deeper level of compassion.